Travelcast B-Sides, episode 81, Sally by Isaac Asimov. Sally was first published in the May-June 1953 issue of Fantastic, and later appeared in the Asimov collections Nightfall and Other Stories and The Complete Robot. The story, like so many of Asimov's predictions 70 years ago, like cell phones, the internet, toaster strudels, portrays a future in which the only cars allowed on the road are those that contain positronic brains, autonomous cars essentially, which do not require a human driver. So Asimov predicted Elon Musk in other words too. Interestingly enough, when asked back then by the Toronto Star what specifically the year 2019 would look like, Asimov, one of the greatest futurists and human minds, also said it would be fruitless to try and imagine it, because he assumed it wouldn't happen. That's how sure he was, and a lot of people were, that the Cold War would kill us all in apocalyptic nuclear flame. So hey, things aren't so bad, right? I mean, we do have cars that drive themselves now. So without further ado, we bring you Sally by Isaac Asimov. Sally by Isaac Asimov. Sally was coming down the lake road, so I waved to her and called her by name. I always liked to see Sally. I liked all of them, you understand, but Sally's the prettiest one of the lot. There just isn't any question about it. She moved a little faster when I waved to her, nothing undignified. She was never that. She moved just enough faster to show that she was glad to see me too. I turned to the man standing beside me. That's Sally, I said. He smiled at me and nodded. Mrs. Hester had brought him in. She said, this is Mr. Gellhorn, Jake. You remember he sent you the letter asking for an appointment? That was just talk, really. I have a million things to do around the farm, and one thing I just can't waste my time on is mail. That's why I have Mrs. Hester around. She lives pretty close by. She's good at attending to foolishness without running to me about it, and most of all, she likes Sally and the rest. Some people don't. Glad to see you, Mr. Gellhorn, I said. "'Raymond F. Gilhorn,' he said, and gave me his hand, which I shook and gave back. He was a largish fellow, half a head taller than I and wider, too. He was about half my age, thirty-ish. He had black hair, plastered down slick, and a part in the middle, and a thin mustache, very neatly trimmed. His jawbones got big under the ears and made him look as if he had a slight case of mumps.' On video he'd be a natural to play the villain, so I assumed he was a nice fellow. It goes to show that video can't be wrong all the time. I'm Jacob Folkers, I said. What can I do for you? He grinned. It was a big, wide, white-toothed grin. You can tell me a little about your farm here, if you don't mind. I heard Sally coming up behind me, and I put out my hand. She slid right into it, and the feel of the hard, glossy enamel of her fender was warm in my palm. Sally was a 2045 convertible with a Hennis Carlton positronic motor and an Armat chassis. She had the cleanest, finest lines I've ever seen on any model, bar none. For five years she'd been my favorite, and I'd put everything into her I could dream up. In all that time, there'd never been a human being behind her wheel. Sally, I said, patting her gently, meet Mr. Gellhorn. Sally's cylinder purr keyed up a little. I listened carefully for any knocking. 
Lately I'd been hearing motor knock in almost all the cars, and changing the gasoline hadn't done a bit of good. Sally was as smooth as her pink job this time. Do you have names for all your cars? asked Galhorn. He sounded amused, and Mrs. Hester doesn't like people to sound as though they were making fun of the farm. She said sharply, Certainly, the cars have real personalities, don't they, Jake? The sedans are all males, and the convertibles are all females. Gellhorn was smiling again. And do you keep them in separate garages, ma'am? Mrs. Hester glared at him. Gellhorn said to me, And now I wonder if I can talk to you alone, Mr. Fokers? That depends, I said. Are you a reporter? No, sir, I'm a sales agent. Any talk we have is not for publication. I assure you, I am interested in strict privacy. Let's walk down the road a bit. There's a bench we can use. We started down. Mrs. Hester walked away. Sally nudged along after us. I said, You don't mind if Sally comes along, do you? Oh, no, not at all. She can't repeat what we say, can she? He laughed at his own joke, reached over and rubbed Sally's grill. Sally raced her motor, and Gellhorn's hand drew away quickly. She's not used to strangers, I explained. We sat down on the bench under the big oak tree, where we could look across the small lake to the private speedway. It was the warm part of the day, and the cars were out in force, at least thirty of them. Even at this distance I could see that Jeremiah was pulling his usual stunt of sneaking up behind some staid older model, then putting on a jerk of speed and yowling past with deliberately squealing brakes. Two weeks before, he had crowded old Angus off the asphalt altogether, and I'd turned off his motor for two days. It didn't help, though, I'm afraid, and it looks as though there's nothing to be done about it. Jeremiah's a sports model to begin with, and that kind is awfully hot-headed. Well, Mr. Gellhorn, I said, could you tell me why you want the information? But he was just looking around. He said, well, this is an amazing place, Mr. Fokrus. I wish you'd call me Jake. Everyone does. All right, Jake. How many cars do you have here? Fifty-one. We get one or two new ones every year. One year we got five. We haven't lost one yet. They're all in perfect running order. We even have a fifteen model, Matt Omot, in working order. One of the original automatics. It was the first car here. Good old Matthew. He stayed in the garage most of the day now, but then he was the granddaddy of all positronic motors. Those were the days when blind war veterans, paraplegics, and heads of state were the only ones who drove automatics. But Samson Herridge was my boss, and he was rich enough to be able to get one. I was his chauffeur at the time. The thought makes me feel old. I can remember when there wasn't an automobile in the world with brains enough to find his way home. I chauffeured dead lumps of machines that needed a man's hand at their controls every minute. Every year, machines like that used to kill tens of thousands of people. The automatics fixed that. A positronic brain can react much faster than a human one, of course, and it paid people to keep hands off the controls. You got in, punched your destination, and let it go its own way. We take that for granted now, but I remember when the first laws came out forcing the old machines off the highways and limiting traffic to automatics. Lord, what a fuss. They called it everything from communism to fascism, but it emptied the highways and stopped the killing, and still more people get around more easily the new way. Of course, the automatics were ten to a hundred times as expensive as the hand-driven ones, and there weren't many that could afford a private vehicle. 
The industry specialized in turning out omnibus automatics. You could always call a company and have one stop at your door in a matter of minutes and take you where you wanted to go. Usually you had to drive with others who were going your way, but what's wrong with that? Samson Herridge had a private car, though, and I went to him the minute it arrived. The car wasn't Matthew to me then. I didn't know it was going to be the dean of the farm someday. I only knew it was going to take my job away, and I hated it. I said, You won't be needing me any more, Mr. Herridge. He said, What are you dithering about, Jake? You don't think I'll trust myself to a contraption like that, do you? You stay right at the controls. I said, But it works by itself, Mr. Herridge. It scans the road, reacts properly to obstacles, humans, and other cars, and remembers routes to travel. Yes, yes, so they say, so they say. Just the same, you're sitting right behind the wheel in case anything goes wrong. Funny how you can get to like a car. In no time at all, I was calling it Matthew and was spending all my time keeping it polished and humming. A positronic brain stays in condition best when it's got control of its chassis at all times, which means it's worth keeping the gas tank filled so that the motor can turn over slowly day and night. After a while, it got so I could tell by the sound of the motor how Matthew felt. In his own way, Herridge grew fond of Matthew, too. He had no one else to like. He divorced or outlived three wives and outlived five children and three grandchildren. So when he died, maybe it wasn't surprising that he had his estate converted into a farm for retired automobiles, with me in charge and Matthew the first member of a distinguished line. It's turned out to be my life. I never got married. You can't get married and still tend to automobiles the way you should. The newspapers thought it was funny, but after a while they stopped joking about it. Some things you can't joke about. Maybe you've never been able to afford an automatic, and maybe you never will either, but take it from me. You get to love them. They're hard-working and affectionate. It takes a man with no heart to mistreat one or to see one mistreated. It got so that after a man had an automobile for a while, he would make provisions to having it left to the farm if he didn't have an heir he could rely on to give it good care. I explained that to Gellhorn. He said, Fifty-one cars, man, that represents a lot of money. Fifty-one thousand minimum per automatic, original investment, I said. They're worth a lot more now. I've done things for them. It must take a lot of money to keep up the farm. Well, you're right there. The farm's a non-profit organization, which gives us a break on taxes, and, of course, new automatics that come in usually have trust funds attached. Still, costs are always going up. I have to keep the place landscaped. I keep laying down new asphalt and keeping the old in repair. There's gasoline, oil, repairs, and new gadgets. It all adds up. So you've spent a long time at it. I sure have, Mr. Gellhorn. Thirty-three years. You don't seem to be getting much out of it yourself. I don't? <laughs> you surprise me, Mr. Gellhorn. I've got Sally and fifty others. Look at her. I was grinning. I couldn't help it. Sally was so clean it almost hurt. Some insect must have died on her windshield, or one speck of dust too many had landed, so she was going to work. A little tube protruded and spurted Turgasol over the glass. It spread quickly over the silicon surface film, and squeegees snapped into place instantly, passing over the windshield and forcing the water into the little channel that let it dripping down to the ground. Not a speck of water got into her glistening apple-green hood. Squeegee and deterrent tube snapped back into place and disappeared. Gellhorn said, I never saw an automatic do that. I guess not, I said. 
I fixed that up specially on our cars. They're clean. They're always scrubbing the glass. They like it. I've got Sally fixed up with wax jets. She polishes herself up every night till you can see her face in any part of her and shave by it. If I can scrape up the money, I'd be putting it up on the rest of the girls. Convertibles are very vain. I can tell you how to scrape up the money, if that interests you. Oh, that always does. How? Well, isn't it obvious? Any of your cars is worth 50000 minimum, you said. I'll bet most of them top six figures. So? Ever think of selling a few? I shook my head. You don't realize it, I guess, Mr. Gellhorn, but I can't sell any of these. They belong to the farm, not to me. The money would go to the farm. The incorporation papers of the farm provide that the cars receive perpetual care. They can't be sold. What about the motors, then? I don't understand you. Gellhorn shifted position and his voice got confidential. Look here, Jake, let me explain the situation. There's a big market for private automatics if they could only be made cheaply enough, right? Well, that's no secret. And 95% of the cost is the motor, right? Now, I know where we can get a supply of bodies. I also know where we can sell automatics at a good price. 20 or 30,000 for the cheaper models, maybe 50 or 60 for the better ones. All I need are the motors. You see the solution? I'm afraid I don't, Mr. Gellhorn. I did, but I wanted him to spell it out. It's right here. You've got 51 of them. You're an expert automobile mechanic, Jake. You must be. You could unhook a motor and place it in another car so that no one would know the difference. It wouldn't be exactly ethical. You wouldn't be harming the cars. You'd be doing them a favor. Use your older cars. Use that old Matomot. Well, now, wait a while, Mr. Kelhorn. The motors and bodies aren't two separate items. They're a single unit. All right, that's a point. That's a very good point, Jake. It would be like taking your mind and putting it in someone else's skull, right? You don't think you would like that. I don't think I would, no. But what if I took your mind and put it into the body of a young athlete? What about that, Jake? You're not a youngster anymore. If you had the chance, wouldn't you enjoy being 20 again? That's what I'm offering some of your positronic motors. They'll be put into 57 bodies, the latest construction. I laughed. That doesn't make much sense, Mr. Gellhorn. Some of our cars may be old, but they're well cared for. They're allowed their own way. They're retired, Mr. Gellhorn. I wouldn't want a 20-year-old body if it meant I had to dig ditches for the rest of my new life and never have enough to eat. What do you think, Sally? Sally's two doors opened and then shut with a cushioned slam. What's that? said Gellhorn. That's the way Sally laughs. Gellhorn forced a smile. I guess he thought I was going to make a bad joke. Then he said, Talk sense, Jake. Cars are made to be driven. They're probably not happy if you don't drive them. Sally hasn't been driven in five years. She looks happy to me. I wonder. He got up and walked towards Sally slowly. Hi, Sally. How would you like a drive? Sally's motor revved up. She backed away. Don't push her, Mr. Gellhorn, I said. She's liable to be a little skittish. Two sedans were about a hundred yards up the road. They'd stopped. Maybe in their own way they were watching. I didn't bother about them. I had my eyes on Sally, and I kept them there. Gellhorn said, Steady now, Sally. He lunged out and seized the door handle. It didn't budge, of course. He said, It opened a minute ago. 
I said, automatic lock. She's got a sense of privacy, Sally has. He let go then, slowly and deliberately. A car with a sense of privacy shouldn't go around with its top down. He stepped back three or four paces, then quickly, so quickly I couldn't take a step to stop him, and he ran forward and vaulted into the car. He caught Sally completely by surprise, because as he came down, he shut off the ignition before she could lock it in place. For the first time in five years, Sally's motor was dead. I think I yelled, but Gellhorn had the switch on manual and locked that in place too. He kicked the motor into action. Sally was alive again, but she had no freedom of action. He started up the road. The sedans were there still. They turned and drifted away, not very quickly. I suppose it was all a puzzle to them. One was Giuseppe from the Milan factories, and the other was Stefan. They were always together. They were both new at the farm, but they'd been here long enough to know that our cars just didn't have drivers. Gellhorn went straight on, and when the sedans finally got it through their heads that Sally wasn't going to slow down, that she couldn't slow down, it was too late for anything but desperate measures. They broke for it, one to each side, and Sally raced between them like a streak. Stefan crashed through the lakeside fence and rolled to a halt on the grass, and mud shot not six inches from the water's edge. Giuseppe bumped along the land side of the road to a shaking halt. I had Stefan back on the highway and was trying to find out what harm, if any, the fence had done to him when Gellhorn came back. Gellhorn opened Sally's door and stepped out. Leaning back, he shut off the ignition a second time. There, he said. I think I did her a lot of good. I held my temper. Why did you dash through the sedans? There was no reason for that. I kept expecting them to turn out. They did. One went through a fence. Oh, I'm sorry, Jake, he said. I thought they'd move more quickly. You know how it is. I've been in a lot of buses, but I've only been in one private automatic two or three times in my life, and this is the first time I've ever driven one. That just shows you, Jake, it got me driving one, and I'm pretty hard-boiled, I tell you. We don't have to go more than 20% below list price to reach a good market, and it would be nearly 90% profit. Which we would split? Oh, fifty-fifty, and I take all the risks, remember? All right, I listen to you. Now you listen to me. I raised my voice because I was just too mad to be polite. When you turn off Sally's motor, you hurt her. How would you like to be kicked unconscious? That's what you did to Sally when you turned her off. You're exaggerating, Jeff. The automobuses get turned off every night. Sure, that's why I want none of my boys or girls in your fancy 57 bodies, where I won't know what treatment they'll get. Buses need major repairs in the positronic circuits every couple of years. Old Matthew hasn't had his circuits touched in 20 years. What can you offer him compared to that? Well, you're excited now. Suppose you think over my proposition when you've cooled down and get in touch with me. I've thought it over all I want to. If I ever see you again, I'll call the police. His mouth got hard and ugly. Why, just a minute, my boy. I said, just a minute, you. This is private property, and I'm ordering you off. He shrugged. Well, then, goodbye. I said, Mr. Hester will see you off property. Make that goodbye permanent. But it wasn't permanent. I saw him again two days later, two and a half days, rather, because it was about noon when I saw him first, and a little after midnight when I saw him again. I sat up in bed when he turned the light on, blinking blindly till I made out what was happening.
He had a gun in his right fist, the nasty little needle barrel just visible between his two fingers. I knew that all he had to do was to increase the pressure of his hand, and I would be torn apart. He said, Put on your clothes, Jake. I didn't move. I just watched him. He said, Look, Jake, I know the situation. I visited you two days ago, remember? You have no guards on this place, no electrified fences, no warning signals, nothing. I said, I don't need any. Meanwhile, there's nothing to stop you from leaving, Mr. Gellhorn. I would if I were you. This place can be very dangerous. He laughed a little. <laughs> it is for anyone on the wrong side of a fist gun. I see it, I said. I know you've got one. Then get a move on. My men are waiting. No, sir, Mr. Gellhorn. Not unless you tell me what you want, and then probably not then. I made you a proposition day before yesterday. The answer's still no. There's more to the proposition now. I've come here with some men and an automobus. You have your chance to come with me and disconnect 25 of the positronic motors. I don't care which 25 you choose. We'll load them on the bus and take them away. Once they're disposed of, I'll see to it that you get your fair share of the money. I have your word on that, I suppose? He didn't act as if he thought I was being sarcastic. He said, You have. I said, no. If you insist on saying no, we'll go about it our own way. I'll disconnect the motors myself, only I'll disconnect all fifty-one, every last one of them. It isn't easy to disconnect positronic motors, Mr. Gellhorn. Are you a robotics expert? Even if you are, you know, these motors have been modified by me. Oh, I know that, Jake. And to be truthful, I'm not an expert. I may ruin quite a few motors trying to get them out. That's why I'll have to work over all fifty-one if you don't cooperate. You see, I may only end up with twenty-five when I'm through. The first few I'll tackle will probably suffer the most, till I get the hang of it, that is. And if I go at it myself, I think I'll put Sally first in line. I can't believe you're serious, Mr. Gellhorn. Oh, I'm serious, Jake. He let it all dribble in. If you want to help, you can keep Sally. Otherwise, she's liable to be hurt very badly. I'm sorry. I'll come with you, Mr. Gellhorn, but I'll give you one more warning. You'll be in trouble. He thought that was funny. He was laughing very quietly as we went down the stairs together. There was an automobus waiting outside the driveway to the garage apartments. The shadows of three men waited beside it, and their flash beams went on as we approached. Gellhorn said in a low voice, I've got a fellow here. Come on, move the truck up the drive and let's get started. One of the others leaned in and punched the proper instructions on the control panel. We moved up the driveway with the bus following submissively. It won't go inside the garage, I said. The door won't take it. We don't have buses here, only private cars. All right, said Gellhorn. Put it over onto the grass and keep it out of sight. I could hear the thrumming of the cars when we were still ten yards from the garage. Usually they quieted down if I entered the garage. This time they didn't. I think they knew that strangers were about, and once the faces of Gellhorn and the others were visible, they got noisier. Each motor was a warm rumble, and each motor was knocking irregularly until the place rattled. The lights went up automatically as we stepped inside. Gellhorn didn't seem bothered by the car noise, but the three men with him looked surprised and uncomfortable. 
They had the look of the hired thug about them, a look that was not compounded of physical features so much as of a certain wariness of eye and hang-doggedness of face. I knew the type, and I wasn't worried. One of them said, Damn it, they're burning gas. My cars always do, I replied stiffly. Not tonight, said Gellhorn. Turn them off. It's not that easy, Mr. Gellhorn, I said. Oh, get started. I stood there. He had his fist gun pointed at me steadily. I told you, Mr. Gellhorn, that my cars have been well treated while they're at the farm. They're used to being treated that way, and they present anything else. You have one minute. Lecture me some other time. I'm trying to explain something to you. I'm trying to explain that my cars can understand what I say to them. A positronic motor will learn to do that with time and patience. My cars have learned. Sally understood your proposition two days ago. You'll remember she laughed when I asked her opinion. She also knows what you did to her, and so do the two sedans you scattered. And the rest know what to do about trespassers in general. Look, you crazy fool. All I have to say to you, I raised my voice is get them. One of the men turned pasty and yelled, but his voice was drowned completely in the sound of fifty-one horns turned loose at once. They held their notes, and within four walls of the garage the echoes rose to a wild metallic call. Two cars rolled forward, not hurriedly, but with no possible mistake as to their target. Two cars fell in line behind the two. All the cars were stirring in their separate stalls. The thugs stared, then backed. I shouted, Don't get up against the wall! Apparently they had that instinctive thought themselves. They rushed madly for the door of the garage. At the door, one of Gellhorn's men turned, brought up a fist gun of his own. The needle pellet tore a thin blue flash toward the first car. The car was Giuseppe. A thin line of paint peeled up Giuseppe's hood, and the right half of his windshield crazed and splintered, but did not break through. The men were out the door running, and two by two the cars crunched out after them into the night, their horns calling the charge. I kept my hand on Gellhorn's elbow, but I didn't think he could have moved in any case. His lips were trembling. I said, that's why I didn't need electrified fences or guards. My property protects itself. Gellhorn's eyes swiveled back and forth in fascination as, pair by pair, they whizzed by. They're killers! Oh, don't be silly. They won't kill your men. They're killers. They'll just give your men a lesson. My cars have been specially trained for cross-country pursuit for just such an occasion. I think what your men will get will be far worse than an outright quick kill. Have you ever been chased by an automobile, Mr. Gellhorn? He didn't answer. I went on. I didn't want him to miss a thing. There'll be shadows going no faster than your men, chasing them here, blocking them there, blaring at them, dashing at them, missing with a screech of brake and a thunder of motor. They'll keep it up till your men drop, out of breath and half dead, waiting for the wheels to crunch over their breaking bones. The cars won't do that. They'll turn away. You can bet, though, that your men will never return here in their lives. Not for all the money you or ten like you could ever give them. Listen. I tightened my hold on his elbow. He strained to hear. I said, Don't you hear car door slamming? It was faint and distant, but unmistakable. I said, They're laughing. They're enjoying themselves. His face crumpled with rage. He lifted his hand. He was still holding his fist gun. I said, Oh, I wouldn't if I were you. One autumn car is still with us. I didn't think he'd noticed Sally till then. 
She'd moved up so quietly. Though her right front fender nearly touched me, I couldn't hear her motor. She might have been holding her breath. Oh, she won't touch you, as long as I'm with you. But if you kill me, you know... Her motor shielded, I said, and before you could ever squeeze the gun a second time, she would be on top of you. All right, all right then, he yelled, and suddenly my arm was bent behind my back and twisted so I could hardly stand. He held me between Sally and himself, and his pressure didn't let up. Back out with me and don't try to break loose. I'll tear your arm out of its socket. I had to move. Sally nudged along with us, worried, uncertain what to do. I tried to say something to her and couldn't. I could only clench my teeth and moan. Gellhorn's automobus was still standing outside the garage. I was forced in it. Gellhorn jumped in after me, locking the doors. He said, All right now, we'll talk sense. I was rubbing my arm, trying to get life back into it, and even as I did, I was automatically and without any conscious effort studying the control board of the bus. I said, This is a rebuilt job. So, he said caustically, it's a sample of my work. I picked up a disfractured chassis, found a brain I could use, and spliced me in a private bus. What fit? I tore at a repair panel, forcing it aside. What the hell? Get away from that! The side of his palm came down numbingly on my left shoulder. I struggled with him. I don't want to do this bus any harm. What kind of person do you think I am? I just want to take a look at some of the motor connections. They didn't take much of a look. I was boiling when I turned around to him. You are a hound and a bastard. You had no right installing this motor yourself. Why don't you get a robotics man? <laughs> Do I look crazy? Even if it was a stolen motor, you had no right to treat it so. I wouldn't treat a man the way you treated that motor. Solder, tape, pinch snaps, it's brutal. It works, doesn't it? Sure, it works, but it must be hell for the bus. You could live with migraine headaches and acute arthritis, but it wouldn't be much of a life. This car is suffering. Oh, shut up. For a moment, he glanced out the window at Sally, who'd rolled up as close to the bus as she could. He made sure the doors and windows were locked. We're getting out of here now, before the other cars come back. We'll stay away. How will that help you? Your cars will run out of gas someday, won't they? You haven't got them fixed up so they can tank up on their own, have you? We'll come back and finish the job. They'll be looking for me, I said. Mrs. Hester will call the police. He was past reasoning with. He just punched the bus in gear. It lurched forward. Sally followed. He giggled. What can she do if you're here with me? Sally seemed to realize that, too. She picked up speed, passed us, and was gone. Gellhorn opened the window next to him and spat through the opening. The bus lumbered on over the dark road, its motor rattling unevenly. Gellhorn dimmed the periphery light until the phosphorescent green stripe down the middle of the highway, sparkling in the moonlight, was all that kept us out of the trees. There was virtually no traffic. Two cars passed ours, going the other way, and there was none at all on our side of the highway, either before or behind. I heard the door slamming first, quick and sharp in the silence, first on the right and then on the left of Gellhorn's hands. As they quivered, he punched savagely for increased speed. A beam of light shot out from among a scrub of trees behind us. Another beam plunged at us from behind the guardrails. At a crossover four hundred yards ahead, there was a squee as a car darted across our path. Huh. Sally went for the rest, 
I said. I think you're surrounded. So what? What can they do? He hunched over the controls, peering through the windshield. Oh, and don't you try anything. I couldn't. I was bone-weary. My left arm was on fire. The motor sounds gathered and grew closer. I could hear the motor missing in odd patterns. Suddenly it seemed to me that my cars were speaking to one another. A medley of horns came from behind. I turned and Gellhorn looked quickly into the rearview mirror. A dozen cars were following in both lanes. Gellhorn yelled and laughed madly. I cried, Stop! Stop the car! Because not a quarter of a mile ahead, plainly visible in the light beams of two sedans on the road, was Sally, her trim body plunked square across the road. Two cars shot into the opposite lane to our left, keeping perfect time with us and preventing Gellhorn from turning out. But he had no intention of turning out. He put his finger on the full speed ahead button and kept it there. He said, there'll be no bluffing here. This bus outweighs her five to one, man, and we'll just push her off the road like a dead kitten. I knew he could. The bus was on manual and his finger was on the button. I knew he could. I lowered the window and stuck my head out. Sally, I screamed, get out of the way. It was drowned out in the agonized squeal of maltreated brake bands. I felt myself thrown forward and heard Gellhorn's breath puff out of his body. What happened? It was a foolish question. We'd stopped. That was what happened. Sally and the bus were five feet apart, with five times her weight tearing down upon her, and she had not budged. The guts on her. Gellhorn yanked at the manual toggle switch. It's got to, he kept muttering. It's got to. Not the way you hooked up the motor, expert. Any of the circuits could cross over. He looked at me with a tearing anger and growled deep in his throat. His hair was matted over his forehead. He lifted his fist. Why, that's all the advice out of you there'll ever be. I knew the needle gun was about to fire. I pressed back against the door, watching the fist come up, and when the door opened, I went over backward and out, hitting the ground with a thud. I heard the door slam closed again. I got to my knees and looked up in time to see Gellhorn struggling uselessly with the closing window, then aiming his fist gun quickly through the glass, but he never fired. The bus got underway with a tremendous roar and Gellhorn lurched backward. Sally wasn't in the way any longer, and I watched the bus's rear lights flicker away down the highway. I was exhausted. I sat down right there, right on the highway, and put my head down in my crossed arms, trying to catch my breath. I heard a car stop gently at my side. When I looked up, it was Sally. Slowly, lovingly, you might say. Her front door opened. No one had driven Sally for five years, except Gellhorn, of course, and I know how valuable such freedom was to a car. I appreciated the gesture, but said, Thanks, Sally, but I'll take one of the newer cars. I got up and turned away, but skillfully and neatly as a pirouette, she wheeled before me again. I couldn't hurt her feelings. I got in. Her front seat had the fine, fresh scent of an automobile that kept itself spotlessly clean. I lay down across it, thankfully, and with even silent and rapid efficiency, my boys and girls brought me home. Miss Hester brought me a copy of the radio transcript the next evening with great excitement. It's Mr. Gellhorn, she said, the man who came to see you. 
but about him. I dreaded her answer. They found him dead, she said. Imagine that, just lying dead in a ditch. It might be a stranger altogether, I mumbled. Raymond J. Gellhorn, she said sharply. There can't be two, can there? The description fits, too. Lord, what a way to die. They found tire marks on his arms and body. <laughs> Imagine. I'm glad it turned out to be a bus. Otherwise, they might have come poking around here. Did it happen near here? I asked anxiously. No, no, near Cooksville. But goodness, read about it yourself if you... What happened to Giuseppe? I welcomed the diversion. Giuseppe was waiting patiently for me to complete the repaint job. His windshield had been replaced. After she left, I snatched up the transcript. There was no doubt about it. The doctor reported he'd been running and was in a state of total spent exhaustion. I wondered for how many miles the bus had played with him before the final lunge. The transcript had no notion of anything like that, of course. They'd located the bus and identified it by the tire tracks. The police had it and were trying to trace its ownership. There was an editorial in the transcript about it. It had been the first traffic fatality in the state for that year, and the paper warned strenuously against manual driving after night. There was no mention of Gellhorn's three thugs, and for that, at least, I was grateful. None of our cars had been seduced by the pleasure of the chase into killing. And that was all. I let the paper drop. Gellhorn had been a criminal. His treatment of the bus had been brutal. There was no question in my mind that he deserved death. But still, I felt a bit queasy over the manner of it. A month has passed now, and I can't get it out of my mind. My cars talk to one another. I have no doubt about it anymore. It's as though they've gained confidence, as though they're not bothering to keep it secret anymore. Their engines rattle and knock continuously, and they don't talk among themselves only. They talk to the cars and buses that come into the farm on business. How long have they been doing that? They must be understood, too. Gellhorn's bus understands them, for all it hadn't been on the grounds more than an hour. I can close my eyes and bring back that dash along the highway, with our cars flanking the bus on either side, clacking their motors at it till it understood, and stopped, and let me out, and ran off with Gellhorn. Did my cars tell him to kill Gellhorn? Was that his idea? Can cars have such ideas? The motor designers say no, but they mean under ordinary conditions. Have they foreseen everything? Cars get ill-used, you know. Some of them enter the farm and observe. They get told things. They find out that cars exist where motors are never stopped, whom no one ever drives, whose every need is supplied. Then maybe they go out and tell others. Maybe the word is spread quickly. Maybe they're going to think that the farm way should be the way all over the world. They don't understand. You couldn't expect them to understand about legacies and the whims of rich men. There are millions of automobiles on earth, tens of millions. If the thought gets rooted in them that they're slaves, that they should do something about it, if they begin to think the way Gellhorn's bus did, maybe it won't be till after my time. And then they'll have to keep a few of us to take care of them, won't they? They wouldn't kill us all. And maybe they would. Maybe they wouldn't understand about how someone would care for them. Maybe they won't wait. Every morning I wake up and think, 
Maybe today. I don't get as much pleasure out of my cars as I used to. Lately, I notice that I'm even beginning to avoid Sally. This story was brought to you by Drabblecast Productions. Special thanks to our episode artist, Jonathan Sims. Jonathan's an artist, designer, comic creator, and illustrator living in Iowa City. Check out his comic books and craft brewery art at skelenaut.com. And thanks to you, our Drabblecast B-Side subscriber. Without your support, we couldn't do any of this, and we greatly appreciate it.